0: And that will bring us to our message this morning. I've decided, especially since we covered a great deal of uh, doctrinal matters and detail as we've worked through this first chapter, it is a crucial chapter to the entire letter. Uh, This morning will be something of a review especially considering the various Old Testament passages that we went to to look at in detail and to consider them in their context. We can move over those this morning, Uh, not the passages themselves, but the detail of their historic place and how it came to be in the epistle to the Hebrews. Of course, we can always say the Holy Spirit put it there. And be content with that. So this morning we're going to read the entire chapter. I'm going to read that to you this morning. If you have any condition that makes it difficult for you to stand for a few moments. As we do all stand right now. uh, We will remain standing then for prayer. But if you need to stay seated. We understand that. So if you will stand with me brethren. Has been a delight and one of the most difficult um, series of studies I have done personally in my ministry. This is a challenging book, and it is one that, when we stay with it, bears much wonderful spiritual fruit. But we have to dig; <clears throat> it doesn't just roll out as it does in some of the other letters. So I will read the entirety of this chapter. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, this is God's Word, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he He made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. <clears throat> For under which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let All the angels of God worship Him. And of the angels He saith, who maketh His angels spirits and His ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son He saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of Thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity therefore god even thy god hath anointed thee with all with the oil of gladness above thy fellows and thou lord in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of thine hands they shall perish But thou remainest, and they shall all wax old, as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up. They shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be the heirs of salvation? Amen. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to this wonderful word. Please remain standing as we pray, seeking our God's mercy. Father, we and thy people gather all around this world throughout this day. We thank Thee for the Lord's Day. We thank Thee for a day of worship. We thank Thee that Thou dost promise to meet with Thy people. Here we are. We are gathered. We are Thy church, as every one of Thy true churches can proclaim. We are Thy people, purchased, purchased. By the blood of thy holy son Christ. We are thy people. Thy temple. Filled with the Holy Spirit. And we long. For the power of that filling this morning. Lord. Thou didst say that those that believe on thee. Out of their belly shall flow rivers of living water. Oh may the the rivers. Not the streams, not the the trickles, but may the rivers of living water flow out and in thy people today. May we know thy glorious blessing. Come down, Lord. Encourage thy people. Build them up in the faith. Those, O Lord, who need thine encouragement, strengthen them. Those, O Lord, whose hearts are filled with sorrow, grant them joy. In the Spirit. Those, O Lord, who are not with us and laid up by sicknesses or physical conditions, heal them, O God. Please have mercy upon their souls. Wherever Thy people are, as the day began today and as it will run its course, may all of the gatherings of Thy people be lights that shine in the darkness, that bring forth, speak of, and live the glorious truths of thine holy word. Now come, Lord, and teach us. We pray, open the hearts of the lost and meet with thy people, meet their needs today in Christ Jesus. We pray it all in the holy name of the Savior. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. by the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit the author of Hebrews has filled his sermonic letter with references to the Trinity and to the person and work of Jesus Christ In other words, the heavenly author, the Holy Spirit, has guided the earthly author to write a letter in the form of a sermon which engages Christ's people with the doctrines of the Trinity and Christology, among others. That makes the teaching revealed in Hebrews to be powerful, persuasive, And motivating to those who have ears to hear. This letter demands, this letter demands a heartfelt response from its hearers and readers. It is a sunburst of hope for God's people in dark times of affliction or persecution. Our message then is entitled, Trinity and Christology. May our heavenly Father, who loved us so that he gave his only begotten Son to secure eternal life for believers, fill us with a light of understanding, the faith that saves and sanctifies the soul and the joy of the Holy Ghost. What follows then is a summary of what we have learned thus far. So our first major thought is what's the purpose of the letter to the Hebrews? We'll consider definitions and context. First, we want to remember the author's intent The believing Jews, to whom this letter is addressed, were facing dangerous times. As Christians, they feared persecution for their faith, their faith in Christ, from fellow Jews and later from Roman Gentiles. It is quite remarkable that the first major persecutions upon God's people came from the Jews. To whom Christ came, to whom they rejected, and to whom they gave agreement to his death. Remarkable. Under the pressure of persecution from their own people and being cut off from the temple, many believing Jews were apparently leaving the faith of Christ to return to Judaism and the Old Covenant. So with Christ-like love and pastoral heart, the author of Hebrews uses his extensive knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures to persuade and to exhort his readers to persevere in perilous times by faith in the surpassing excellence of Jesus Christ. The author's method Enlightened and directed by the Holy Spirit, the author of Hebrews used a common Jewish method to make his exhortations, arguments, warnings, and encouragements. He forges chains of scripture, linking one to another to make forceful and convincing exhortations and convincing arguments not in the sense of people going to fistfights not in the idea of argument with angry red faces but laying forth the argument of the truth of those scriptures for men and women and children to consider and to consider their souls in the light of those powerful arguments but he is especially encouraging them in the surpassing excellence of Christ because they're leaving the faith. At least many seem to have been doing so. As George Guthrie puts it, quote, the desired effect, that is of linking all of these scriptures together, the desired effect was to offer so much evidence that your listeners shook their head in agreement with you by the end of these quotations. If I can say it this way, it was to be a tidal wave of truth that would sweep those who are in its way into the glory of God's truth. Furthermore, undergirding the author's arguments in Hebrews are... The doctrine of God, primarily the Trinity, and the doctrine of Christology, primarily the Incarnation. Now let us refresh our memories a little further. The doctrine of the Trinity. We began our sermons in Hebrews with the doctrine of God. The Lexham survey of theology says, quote, The doctrine of God encompasses the Christian description of the triune God's being or essence as well as God's names, attributes, and works according to Scripture. Close quote. And we focused on the triune nature of God. And we learned that within the essence of the one God, There are three eternal persons the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God's essence is spirit. You can't put that under a microscope. We don't know what spirit is, it's immaterial existence. But that's about all we can say. So, God is great and glorious and so far above us as to be incomprehensible. That is actually one of his attributes. What we have is the holy revelation of God's word to instruct us about our God. And this is what it tells us. So... The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. But there is only one God, not three gods. God's people must always hold to the unity of the divine essence and the distinction of the persons. that makes sense? We have to hold to one essence in three persons. We must make the distinctions, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, because the Scriptures do. As I said previously, the Father didn't die on the cross. The Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, not Jesus. In fact, it was Jesus that poured out the Spirit. There are clear distinctions of the persons, but one essence. The Scriptures refuse to budge one God. Now... Next is the doctrine of Christology. Christology is the study of the person and work of Christ. Fred Sanders, a specialist and authority in the doctrine of the Trinity, written a number of excellent books on the subject, wisely says, quote, Christology is one of the most difficult doctrines in all of theology. Perhaps second only to the doctrine of the Trinity. So this book is filled with these lofty doctrines. Page after page after page after page. It's there. The testimony of God's Word is there. And we must come with humble hearts asking God to teach us through it. Now we have focused on the part of Christology which we call the incarnation. Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man in one person. The eternal Son of God in some miraculous way, joined with humanity. Truly God, truly human, and yet one person. You say that's difficult to understand. It is. And yet it is the plain teaching of Scripture. When I say plain teaching, That doesn't mean it's simple what i'm saying is when you go to the word of god this is what you find as you go from chapter to chapter to chapter from genesis to revelation you continue to hear of god the one god by the time you get to the new testament there's a glorious revelation of father son and holy spirit and yet one god so those two doctrines as i said earlier Among others, those two doctrines are foundational through the epistle to the Hebrews. That is why we took so much time through this first chapter. That brings us to our second heading, the exordium. The exordium, that's not a word we use. In fact, it may not be a word you knew until it came out of the pulpit. But the exordium uh, is about God the Father and his Son, Verses one through four. So we've considered what the author is doing. Under the power of the Holy Ghost, he's now going to start to unfold a number of themes in short compass. And then as the letter unfolds, he takes those themes and expands them. And they're glorious. So he introduces us in the first four verses. Or the exordium. Uh, I mentioned earlier that the exordium is the introduction to a discourse. Or a sermon. Or a written work. The reason that's important is because this is a letter. And yet it doesn't sound like a letter. It doesn't begin like a letter. Paul always says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the churches at Galatia. There's nothing like that here. It just begins. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, etc. Now, the author of Hebrews does say in chapter 13, verse 22, I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation. That means bear with. Bear with a word of exhortation. Exhortations are often very strong in the Bible. In fact, they are in real life. I'm not saying the Bible is not real life. What I'm saying is real life, meaning our lives. But God's word, his living word, is filled with exhortations. Paul exhorted, Peter exhorted. All of the apostolic letters exhort us, strongly encourage us, to do something or not to do something or to believe something. So <clears throat> he says in chapter 22, I beseech you to suffer the word of exhortation. That's what he's just done for 13 chapters. For I have written a letter unto you in few words. So the exordium is the introduction to this letter of exhortation given in the form of a sermon and passed around to the churches of that day. It reveals several themes as or that the author will expand, he will explain, he will apply them throughout the letter. And it tells us first, God the Father speaks. God the Father speaks. I praise Him that He is a speaking God, that He doesn't leave us in our darkness. He has given us His Word. We have His Word. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. There's a clear contrast here. The God of the Bible speaks. He spoke through the ages before Christ's first advent through his servants, the prophets. God spoke through them at different times and in various ways. If you read the Old Testament, you see that plainly laid out. He has just described the Old Testament scriptures. But now in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, his last and great revelation until Christ comes again. These words also introduce the doctrine of scriptures, which permeates the letter. Now in contrast to the Old Covenant and its prophet, Prophets, the author gives seven assertions about God's Son. He's making, once again, a very sharp contrast. The prophets of old were wonderful, gracious, powerful servants of God. But the Son is better. That's the argument. These seven assertions or descriptions of the sun are breathtaking. If you sit and meditate on these, they're astonishing. They are awe-inspiring. It should grip us. It should truly grip us to take these living words, these seven assertions about this person called the sun, and to drink in The power, the transforming power of what is being said. These seven things are worthy of our meditation. First, whom he, God, hath appointed heir of all things. Verse 2. Jesus Christ, the God-man, rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. There he was enthroned and inherited the messianic kingdom. As the heirs of all things, or the heir of all things, the Son is Lord of all things. There's not one molecule in this universe that he does not govern. He has governed, he does govern, he will govern. Number two, by whom he also made the worlds. Now, this reveals the pre existent Son. This pre existent Son was creator and therefore eternal deity before his incarnation. Now, a word about Christology and the Trinity at this point. All of these things point to Jesus as the second person of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit We're on Trinitarian ground on one hand. But it also speaks to him regarding both his eternal existence as the Son, this is Christology, and his incarnation in which God in the womb of the Virgin came into this world. And served his father, securing for us everlasting life. In his life, his death, his resurrection. Now ascended into glory. Sitting at the father's right hand. But what we see here is not only is he Lord of all things. He made all things. This speaks of his pre-existent sonship. He's always been the Son. There's never a time. How can you say time in eternity? But there was never in eternity a time or a section, a something of eternity where the Son wasn't the Son. It's always been the Son because he's God the Son. He is a preexistent creator and therefore eternal deity. Now we're, at, that, at that point, again, we're touching on both doctrines, the, the doctrine of Christology, and we're talking about the, the Trinity. And Number three, who being the brightness of his glory and his eternal deity and in his incarnation, both Jesus shined forth the everlasting glory of God's perfections. Likewise, number four, he was the express image and is the express image of his, God the Father's, person. In the God-man, in the God-man is the very nature of God. Always has been, ever will be. So Christ is the exact representation of his heavenly Father. That's what he said on earth, didn't he? Have I been so long time with you, Philip? And yet thou hast not known me. He that has seen me has seen the Father. Now he's not saying that he is the same person as the Father. But he is the same God and representing his Father. These things are difficult for us to grasp. The greatest theologians throughout the history of the church wrestle the most deeply, at least as far as what I read, with the Trinity and with Christology. Well, number five, and for those of you visiting with us, I'm moving at high speed over a great deal of information that we have spent Uh, Many sermons on thus far. This is number 30. So I'm running over 30 sermons worth of main headings. Number five, it says, and upholding all things by the word of his power. This holds true of the Son before his incarnation because he was creator. This holds true. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He didn't start doing that sometime. He has always been its creator and its sustainer. What is what is the scripture telling us here? He's God. He has all power. He is God. He's not somebody. He's not some hippie saying peace. He said he came to at one point in his ministry, he, he said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Right. Yet he does bring peace through his glorious work Amen. as our Savior. Well, we can go through all of the things that are a great challenge for us, but we're, we're, we're pushing ahead just to kind of uh, restart, jumpstart our memories about these many things that we have covered. So he upholds all things by the word of his power. This was before his incarnation, during his time on earth, and for eternity. His deity is deity. He'd never stopped being deity. Never was. There never was a moment in existence that he wasn't the living God. Then in number six. Well, by the way, let me say one other thing. Descriptions three, four, and five, which we've just gone over, virtually shout deity and power and therefore All authority. He is God. People today have, uh, many have, a very wimpy God that that means nothing, stands for nothing. Be better if he didn't say anything. But the God of Scripture is God. The one, the only, true God. That is something that is often object to, objected to, but Christ said so, it would be this way. This is a part of what he meant by that he was coming to bring division. There would be people that would cling to him in faith, and there would be those who wanted him dead. So number six, when he had by himself purged our sin, this of course points directly to the incarnation. This points to the incarnation. And you see, we're moving around, we're moving back and forth. Not we, the Holy Spirit has done this and set before us moments in eternity past, times before the incarnation, times during the incarnation, things that have to do with his deity and that only could do with his deity and then things that have to do with his humanity and only things that he could do. In his humanity, God can't die. But the God man surely could and surely did. This is what the verse means when he had by himself purged our sins. This, of course, as I said, is the incarnation. This is the incarnate Son of God. Truly God and yet truly man. He suffered in every part of his humanity and shed his precious blood to cleanse and save his people from their sins. And number seven. Sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. From Christ's humiliation in the in the phrase before this from Christ's humiliation as the sacrifice for sin in this world to his resurrection ascension and exaltation as he is enthroned over the messianic kingdom jesus christ is lord of all to the glory of god the father That 6th and 7th, those 6th and 7th statements are just remarkable. By himself purged our sins and then sat down in glory to an eternal reign. Well... These seven assertions, which we considered in detail, all reveal the glory, the glory, the radiant outshining of his attributes and his perfections. They all reveal Jesus Christ to be the God-man. We have Trinitarian truths through those seven statements, those seven assertions, We have Christological statements through them. Yet the words seem so simple, but they deep dive into the most profound theology throughout the scriptures. Nevertheless, it's not, oh, well, that's kind of interesting. I'll think about it once in a while. It's the foundation of our faith. There's no Christian faith without the Trinity and the incarnation, the Christology of Jesus Christ. There is no. No Christianity. Our faith is in the God-man. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. Well, we press on. These themes that we've just considered will unfold in greater manifestation throughout Hebrews. More exploration, more explanation... These seven things set the stage for the repeating declarations in the letter. Something we're going to hear, we've been told this already, but we're going to hear the Son is better than, and we begin to go through a list of people and things that Christ is better than. We've just been told why he is, because of who he is and what he's done. Do you believe that? Do you believe that with all your heart? Theology matters. Nobody gets it perfectly in this world. But we can sure be right about the most important things in this great and glorious revelation of God. Next is the sun is better than angels. That's verse 4. <clears throat> And it's the hinge to the first theme. Being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. The word made does not mean created. The Son is not created. It means cause to become as we have looked at previously. The God-man became So much better than the angels when he accomplished salvation. The salvation of all God's people. He ascended into glory and was declared the son as he inherited the messianic kingdom. He has all authority. He said this. All authority in heaven and in earth. One of the reasons people that are not believers remain unbelievers At least, and this is part of the reason for some of the lost, not everybody, but plain and simple, they will not be under the authority of anybody but themselves. They will not bow to Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all. They're not going to bow and will lose their immortal souls for that. The God-man became so much better than the angels having accomplished everything the Father sent him to do. Now, as king of kings, lord of lords, God the Son, and the Son of God, he is better than all the mighty angels in God's heaven. That's the author's first major argument. He's better than the angels. Now, this leads us to number three, the inclusio. We've looked at the exordium. Now, the inclusio. Another word that we're not familiar with, but I hope it's beginning to sound a little more familiar to you because inclusios fill the scriptures. It's a very important literary device proving that the sun is better than the angels. The author has said that Jesus is better than the angels, now he's going to put up. He's going to prove it. And that's what verses 5 through 14 are all about. He's now forging that chain of scriptures where by the end, he wants everybody going, "Um, yeah, we see it, we agree. That's what he's attempting to do. And he does it well. The bookends, and inclusio is brackets or bookends. <clears throat> As I've mentioned a, a couple of times, <clears throat> the, the writings of the ancient world did not have subheadings like we would use in the way that we write much of our English in our books or in our manuals. They're like subheadings. They didn't have that, if you've noticed. But they, they used literary devices to point our attention to things. Very important. And an inclusio is one that is regularly in the scriptures. There's the inclusio, the bookends. They point to the content between them. There's a verse and then another verse. And there will be a repetition that will mark This is the inclusio. And the verses are chapter, uh, verse 5 and verse 13. They ask a similar question. That's the trigger. That's what tells you, oh, wait a minute. We've been being directed to this group of verses. Spirit of God uses that wonderfully. So what does it point us to? It points us to the content in between it and that content is the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ which make him better than the angels. The author now gives three pairs of verses and then a single verse to prove that Jesus is better than the angels. He wants us to agree with him. So the inclusio opens. The son is the promised Davidic king first pair of passages <clears throat> begin with a question. Three pairs and then a single verse. For under which of the angels said he at any time? The pronoun he refers to God. And the point is that God never said to any of the angels, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. That quote is from Psalm 2. And it was likely spoken uh, at David's coronation. But the Spirit of God and the author of Hebrews knew that it spoke of Christ. Then the text refers to God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, 14. I will be to him a father. God was making promise to David about his descendants, his seed. He was talking about the kings of Judah, a descendant that would be a great king. But the Holy Spirit applies it to David's son, Jesus the Christ, at his enthronement in glory. That's what's happening as we read this chapter. All these things are being applied by the heavenly author, and the earthly author to cause us to see the glory of Christ and that the old covenant scriptures plainly stated who he was. As with Psalm 2, God never said, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son to an angel. That's the argument. And that opens the inclusio. Everything that follows it is going to make that argument stronger. This pair of verses point to the enthronement of Messiah. And they establish this fact. The son is better than the angels because of his unique relation to the father. Angels have a relation to God the father. But they are not the eternal son. (laughs) Jesus is the eternal Son. That relation is utterly unique. And we're back in Trinitarian ground. This pair of verses are important. So, then come more astonishing assertions. God reveals the deity of the Son and the inferior position of the angels. Verses 6 and 7a. And again, when He, God, Bringeth the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. Psalm 97, 7. And of the angels he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. That's Psalm 104, 4. What's the purpose? Once again, a direct contrast of the Son's glorious deity. And the angels' important but inferior position. God commands the millions upon millions of angels to worship the Son. Then come even more remarkable assertions. Number three, God calls his anointed Son God. There's no higher authority. God says his son is God within the nature, within the essence, which is spirit of the one God. There are three eternal persons, the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see that here. The father calls the son God. But unto the son he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity therefore god even thy god hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows it's hard to imagine my friends a more stunning and mysterious passage in the bible god calling god god but it's right here in front of us This is why there were hundreds of years of struggling as men read and studied the scriptures and as heresies rose up to come to a conclusion, what do the scriptures teach about the living God? And we stand in the long line of those who hold what would be called the orthodox, not orthodox Christianity as Greek orthodox, but orthodox orthodox, right doctrine of the Trinity and of Christology. There were hundreds of years of theological struggle, even battles to to work through this book. Is anybody surprised at that? Satan doesn't want you to know who God is. Satan wants you deaf, dumb, and blind when it comes to God. He wants you put out with churches. I don't like churches. Bunch of hypocrites. Well, it's true. Where else are you going to find them? (laughs) Where else are you going to find them? They say, I'm following God, and they're not. They're hypocrites. Christ said that that would be that way. But it's not true of his real people. It's not true of those that have been born again, brought into union with the power of God's Holy Spirit. So what we have here is unto the Son he, God the Father, saith thy throne, to the Son, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness. Thou hast hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. There's no clear revelation of the Son's deity in the Bible. God says, God. There are a number of wonderful passages that uphold and show us the deity of Christ. But when God says, God, about his Son, He's God. I repeat, within the nature of the one God, there are three eternal persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is called thy God in relation to the Son. These are challenging things. Then it says, God even... Thy God hath anointed thee. We want to hang on that for a moment. Anointed thee with the oil of gladness. It's a wonderful picture for being anointed with the Holy Spirit. When was Jesus anointed? Go down to the river Jordan and see the oil of gladness falling from heaven in the form of a dove. It's the Holy Spirit. Now, in the mind of God, Jesus has always been the Messiah that would come into this world. But in the reality of history, that is when that awesome power fell on the man Jesus. I mean, books have been written about that whole thing. Here is the righteous son, God's anointed king. In other words, I know most of you know this. The word Messiah and the word Christ are the same word. In the Old Testament, he is called Messiah, which means the anointed one. And in the New Testament, he's called the Christ, which is the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. The anointed one isn't simply about power. Sometimes that's what people focus on. And it is true. He lived in the power of the Holy Spirit without measure. Yet at the same time, this glorious Christ, this glorious anointed one was David's son and David's Lord. Christ sat down with the Pharisees and had a talk with them about that. We looked at that last week at some detail. Now the second passage in this group is that Thou, Lord, in the beginning, well, Thou, Lord, in the beginning, hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of Thine hands. They shall perish, but Thou remainest, and they shall wax old. They shall all wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt Thou fold them up. He talks about this magnificent universe as if they were just old clothes fold it up, and put away. That's power. How he's going to do it, I don't know. But he has the power to do it. He is God. Jesus is God. So, they shall be changed, the text says, but thou art the same. His immutability... This is his Godhood. Again, it's another reference that doesn't say Jesus is God, but that is it's exactly what it means. The only unchangeable one is God. We all change. For those of you that are married, go back and look at your, Mary, your, your the day of your wedding, especially if you've been married for over 10 years. Oh, we change, but not Christ. Because he's God. It is true that his humanity grew. Both in stature and in wisdom. But his deity. Is always deity. Always. Well now by applying this passage to Jesus the Son the Holy Spirit. Once again affirms the Son's deity. By revealing him as the sovereign Almighty creator of the universe. Now you get the feeling of the chain, of the link of passages. One after another just keeps rolling out. He is God. He is God. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, incomprehensible, eternal, gracious, merciful, loving. He's everything that God is because He's God. And within the nature of the one God, there are three eternal persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This underlies, are you seeing this? It's like a very firm foundation upon which Hebrews is resting. These mysterious and difficult doctrines. I mean, reading uh, many of the commentaries on this is just like make your head swim. Everybody's wrestling with how these things work together. They work together together. For one primary reason. There's more than one. But here's the primary reason. These things that we're reading couldn't be done. Except God became man. And that answers most of the mystery. It's still a mystery. Fully God. Truly God. Truly man. One person. Well, the inclusio closes. The son at the father's right hand will reign over all his enemies. This is verse 13. Now we've got the inclusio closing up. It closes with these words. But to which of the angels said he at any time? Well, that sounds familiar because that's how the opening of the inclusio. But he wants us to wrestle with those arguments. All those arguments that he said before us from the scriptures. They're the words of God. They're not suggestions of interesting scientists. This is the living word of God. The living word of God. So, this echoes verse 5. He follows this with Psalm 110, verse 1. Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. What a way to close. That's from Psalm 110. It unites both of the ideas of a reigning king in verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 110 and priesthood, verse 4. A priest king or a king priest. We're going to hear that throughout Hebrews. It's going to be expanded. It's going to be expanded. So (coughs) what it tells us very plainly Is that God as a warrior speaks to his son. I'm going to put all your enemies under your feet. That gives hope to God's people. Especially when the enemies of God are persecuting you. And that's why the author to the Hebrews wrote. Persevering faith in Christ in times, perilous times. So, God never said to any angel, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And in verse 14, it tells us about the angels once more. Are they not all ministering spirits, very important work, ministering uh, spirits sent forth to minister to them who shall be heirs of salvation, or for them. Now, we're going to spend some time on that next week. The fact that God, in His love for us, has not only given His Son for us, but He sends out His troops to help and encourage and build us up in the faith. There's no telling in any day what danger we might have fallen into if the angels had not been ministering to us. I was in a wreck many years ago, in which, by all rights, when you hear everything that happened, I should have died, and all the men with me. Why didn't we? Well, people say, You're really lucky. No, no. I was preserved, and I had nothing to do with it. I was asleep in a vehicle, I wasn't the driver. I'll tell you the story sometime, but it's not worth repeating here. So the inclusio has powerfully accomplished its purpose. It has taken the living words of God, spoken by the prophets under the old covenant, and they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ the Lord in the new covenant. And one verse after another just says, he's the God-man. He's the God-man. He's fully God. He has always been God the Son. But now, as the incarnate Son, Christology, He is the eternal King of the kingdom of God. He is the messianic King promised in the Old Testament. Now, whatever your eschatological views are, there are more and more and more, both in uh, pre-mill, amill, and post-mill, that are realizing Hebrews, especially the first chapter, sets before us Christ enthroned of God's kingdom. Let's make a few applications, and then we're done. But, number one, the first one is really very simple. The Old Testament scriptures applied to the Son reveal Him to to be truly God and truly man. The word be might not be in your outline. Scribal error. The Old Testament scriptures applied to the Son reveal Him to be truly God and truly man. We've just seen a chapter of it quoting the Old Testament over and again, and we see that he's truly God. God. God means so little to most of us. We don't bow at the thought of Jesus being God. We don't bow to the idea that he is the absolute Lord of all things. The the man who doesn't believe lives his life in rebellion to the one who can save the only one who can save the immortal soul. Now, this is essential to all Christian belief. We've had looks at the Trinity, just glimpses here and there. We've had glimpses of the incarnation of Christ, a beautiful, uh, a beautiful doctrine set before us. The person and work of Christ have everything to do with the redemption of our never dying souls. For God soul of the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him who is he, the God-man, Jesus the Christ, second person of the Holy Trinity, united with humanity, risen into glory and seated at the Father's right hand. The royal priest who saves sinners. Repent and believe on him. That's the call to his kingdom. That's how he began it. Mark. He says, repent and believe ye the gospel. Believe the good news. That the eternal son became man. An earthly son. So that he could die for sinners. God the Son could never die, but Jesus the man could. That is exactly how sinners are saved. He's the sin-bearing substitute of all his people. Oh, if you don't know Christ here today, there's no one like him. He's gloriously, gloriously unique. We're going to be like him in a certain fashion when we see him as he is but we were never God throughout our entire existence never not one even though there are people that fancy themselves that way you understand that's what the transhumanist movement is about The transhumanist movement is about man becoming God by his own manipulation of evolution we're going to all be robots. Not exaggerating. What do they want to do? They want to unite machines, which supposedly will last better than our human bodies, with our humanity. Does that sound familiar? Something uniting with humanity so that we can live forever? It's just demonic deception. Deception. That's all it is. Jesus is truly God, truly man, and our salvation is wrapped up in repenting, changing our minds about our sin and believing on him that God not only so loved us that he gave, but that Christ is the one given. He took that humanity so that God in his wrath and anger could pour out all of his fury and outrage on his son instead of us. Do you believe that? That's the only gospel out there that, that saves. Jehovah's Witnesses will give you a gospel. It's a lie. Mormons will give you a, a gospel. It's n- not the truth. There are groups out there who profess to be Christians who would never have this God-man. It's essential to salvation. That's right. This is not a negotiable. The Trinity and Christology... And Hebrews is full of it. Yes. It's great. Well, secondly, our doctrines of the Trinity and Christology must arise from Scripture. I know that sounds like, well, that's obvious, right? But uh, any cult that comes to your door will say, well, we believe the Word of God. You know, I mean, at least those that profess to be Christians. Now, Hindus are generally not going to show up at your door with the Bible, Uh, A Buddhist will generally not show up at your door. In fact, they generally won't show up at your door. Uh, You'll go out and you'll see them in various places. They've got their literature all over the place. Uh, And by the way, paganism in almost every form is growing at the most astonishing rate in this country imaginable. Why? Because people have rejected, even people that call themselves Christians, have rejected the Trinity, the Christology, That has just been set before you this morning. There's one God who saves. So the doctrines of the Trinity and Christology must arrive from Scripture. That doesn't mean there aren't things that can help us to read through these things. First and foremost, you will not understand this book unless you've been born again. Secondly, you will not understand this book without the spirit that comes to dwell in you when you're born again. The Holy Spirit gave this book. The Holy Spirit teaches us from it. So that's the bottom line. Now there are brothers and sisters that we've had throughout the ages that have wrestled and struggled with this doctrine of God hundreds of years. You share quickly. We cannot know our God. We cannot know his way of salvation and righteousness without the inspired and infallible truth of God's word. Now, you might not have a Bible, but someone can come and speak that truth to you, and the Holy Spirit can open your heart. That's That's why we should tell people about the Lord Jesus. Hebrews is one of the great New Testament letters that is rich in the doctrine of the Trinity and of Christ. Though not inspired, Great creeds and confessions down through the ages reveal the hard work of theologians and pastors who mine and dig deep to understand our God. Do we dig deeply into the scriptures to know our God? You've got a book that throughout history most people didn't have. You have a book that reveals God. The one true living God. Oh my friends. Knowing Hebrews. Knowing the gospel. Knowing the apostolic letters. Are the rich fountain. Of new covenant redemption. New covenant revelation. Of Jesus Christ the Lord. Let me quote. We don't have time for I'm just going to quote one of these. Listen to the Nicene Creed. Quote, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, Light of light, very God of very God. Begotten, not made. Made there is the idea of creation. Begotten. That's the doctrine that we call eternal generation. But we will not dive into that deep end of the pool today. But he is begotten, not made. Being of one substance with the Father. By whom all things were made. Who for us men of for our salvation who for us men for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the holy spirit of the virgin mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under pontius pilate he suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the father and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end there was a lot of work in that paragraph there was a lot of study of the word of god but that's true that is not inspired but it's speaking having risen from the holy word of god that the creeds and the confessions from time to time differ with each other at minor points all of them do. All of them. Because men continue to study and to dig and to pray. And they sometimes work out problems that other other professions have. Brethren, you don't know it all. I don't know it all. But God does. And he's given us enough of his revelation that we can know how our souls can be saved for eternity. It's in Jesus Christ. Oh, the Athanasian Creed, along with many others, the Great Confessions, uh, the Helvetic Confession, the Westminster Confession, the Savoy Declaration, and the Second London Baptist Confession, which we hold to, are all rooted in the Athanasian Creed, in the Nicene Creed, because God's people have stayed studying the scriptures for millennia. As I said, they don't always agree with everybody, with each other on every single point. But you always get down to one God in three persons. And one Christ who is truly God and truly man. And they profess it. That's why they're called confessions. We confess. I confess this morning what the Nicene Creed confesses. One Christ, truly God, truly man. Well, we could go on. I've got more there, but we will go. Uh -uh. The last two things to consider briefly. The Old Testament scriptures applied to the son prove that he is the prophesied messianic king. That's exactly what chapter one of Hebrews does. If you had no other book in the Bible, it points to the fact that Jesus the Christ is Messiah. Of course, that's almost double saying it twice. Jesus the Messiah is the Christ. He, the Christ is the Messiah. But he's the one. He is the one. He is what this book is about from Genesis to Revelation. The precious, infallible words of God in the Old Testament point us repeatedly to a coming Messiah. And Jesus is the one. Lastly, our worship should always be then Trinitarian. Many fall into just focusing on one person in the Trinity. And of course, often, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand that focus, but it cuts two-thirds out of our God's worship. We have Jesus because the Father gave him. We have him and his labors because the Spirit filled him. Our worship should always be Trinitarian. God the Father, Christ the Son, clearly set before us as deity. The Holy Spirit doesn't show up until Hebrews 2, but we're very close to going into Hebrews 2. And we will see the humanity of Christ set before us and the power of the Holy Spirit. So let us us give much meditation to the Trinity and to Christ's incarnation, difficult as they are, high up on the shelves as they are. God puts them in here, so to speak, for us so that we can come to his truth and begin to meditate and dig deeply so that we can know our God, then so that we can worship our God. Jesus is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Truth, we need this truth. Difficult, challenging, high and lofty as it is. All of us here probably have very small ideas of our God. But we would have greater ideas if we spent our time thinking, meditating through this truth. May we know the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to the saving of our souls and eternity in his worship. In the name of Christ, amen. Father, what a chapter. Nobody can do justice to it, especially in an hour and 20 minutes. Lord God, I pray with all of my heart that thou wouldst take us and that thou wouldst truly instruct us. We want to know thee. We want our hearts filled with, with who the living God is. Forgive us of our errors in thinking about Thee. Forgive us where we fail to love Thee as we ought with the truth that we have. But, O Father, help us, grow us, mature us, make us more like our Savior. Come, move in this place, and move in every place where Thy people gather. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy. All joy in peace and believing. You've got to have something to believe. What do you believe about God, about Christ? Peace and believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Amen. We have a meal together for those.